I'd like to talk this evening on the theme of acceptance. And it's a theme that I often uh, get reminded of. And because I've given a talk on it, uh, I feel like I have to practice it. And it came up for me this past week, the first really pretty day that we had after all the rains. Uh, I think it was last Wednesday. A friend, a good friend of ours, uh, called up in the morning and said, would you like to go flying today? So I think it's going to be really clear. The rain's just ended. The sky's going to be crisp, really good visibility. And uh, so he booked a plane out of Petaluma, and uh, my wife Sally and I went up with him, and we flew for about an hour and a half. And we took out and we went over Point Reyes, and then we came back over Black Mountain and flew over Nicasio and took a photo of a friend's house. And the highlight of the trip was going to be that we would fly over Woodacre, where we live, and take some photos of our house from the sky, and then fly over the Spirit Rock land. Because we'd always wanted uh, some aerial photos of Spirit Rock. Sally and I are both on the committee that's designing the new buildings up here, and we'd like to see from the air how they're located. So we were just incredibly happy to be up. It was a really clear day. You could see for 50 or 60 miles. And uh, we flew over to Casio. We were heading to Woodacre, and the battery in my camera went. <laughs> And I had brought two spares. So I was feverishly unscrewing the little button on the bottom with a penny I'd pulled out of my pocket, meanwhile trying to keep my headset on and talk to the pilot. And it turned out my camera has two batteries in it, so they both I popped them both out and put the new one in and screwed it back in. It didn't work. Took them out again, and I noticed, oh, we're flying over my house. Well, I hope Sally's getting some photos with the other camera, because I'm not. And I tried putting them in again, and I noticed we were over the Spirit Rockland, and I wasn't getting any of it. And uh, the battery still didn't work. I did it a third time. My friend circled over the area twice, and all the time he was circling, I was screwing around with these batteries. And by the time I got the batteries in, he said, well, we've only booked the plane for an hour. We have to go back. So that was the highlight of my trip over Woodacre. <laughs> was messing with the batteries, and I started to get really frustrated. And I could just feel this sort of impatience and frustration and disappointment and anger coming up. And then I realized, well, I could either make a scene about it or I could accept it. And it was such a beautiful day, and the flight back was so pretty, I decided to accept it. And um, I'm glad that, that I have to talk about this from time to time because it really makes me more, more interested in trying to live it. But it's a lesson that I'm, I'm learning and working on all the time. So I'd like to talk about this theme of acceptance tonight. And I think it's a theme that, uh, for me, is one of the central themes of the Dharma. It's a really simple word. And we all go through little situations like that one all the time in our lives, where we can open and accept something disappointing that's happened, or we can really work ourselves into a bind about it. And that's the superficial level of the meaning of acceptance. But acceptance also has a depth to it that I would say goes right to the very heart and core of the Buddha's teachings. So I want to talk about several different layers of this quality of acceptance. I want to talk first about the whole process of coming to terms with and accepting ourselves, which is a big area for acceptance. I want to talk about how it's a pointer to the heart of the Buddha's teachings. And then I also want to talk about the larger picture, which is a, an acceptance of life. This question of self-acceptance is obviously uh, a a key one or a crux one in our society, as you can tell by the popularity of somebody like Woody Allen, who's sort of the apostle of self-doubt. <laughs> or uh, Groucho Marx, whose famous comment was, uh, I wouldn't like to belong to any club that would have me as a member. <laughs> and the popularity of books like I'm Okay, You're Okay, which is one of the very first, I think, pop psychology bestsellers. And looking around the room tonight, I can see that uh, many of us are uh, of a similar generation where one of the things that we have to work with in self-acceptance is relating to our aging. 
And uh, it's something that I've been working with for some years. I was just at a gathering and uh, sitting with my wife, got up and strolled away. And this was quite some years ago. I still thought of myself as a young man. And somebody next to my wife said, who is that man? And she said, uh, what man? And they said, uh, that middle-aged man you were talking to. <laughs> and I had not thought of myself as middle-aged at that point. So I had to start to relate to my, my aging. Actually, I was about 35, and it seems to be the age where maybe this comes up. Oscar Wilde had uh, this comment from his observations of London. He said, 35 is a very attractive age. London society is full of ladies and gentlemen of the highest birth who have, of their own free choice, remained 35 for years. <laughs> I had a friend who started to lose most of his hair when he was still in his 20s, his mid-20s. And that can be a hard thing to accept when you're young and single. And he said that the, um, the hardest thing about it was when he came to wash his face. He said when he got to his forehead, he wasn't sure where to stop. <laughs> so, we all have to deal with our aging, that the body becomes not as reliable and perhaps not as beautiful and appealing-looking as it once was, part of what we have to accept as human beings. As human beings in the West, I think we're in a unique situation. It seems to me that we've grown up in one of the very few cultures in probably the history of uh, mankind, humankind, that has not had a strong uh, spiritual center to the society was probably only in the last hundred years or so that the rise of scientific rationalism came in our civilization and really undercut uh, spirituality as a central organizing factor in human life for, for Europeans. And this, I think, has had a tremendous effect. We've grown up in a very secular way to the point that many people even doubt uh, that there is any uh, sort of wisdom in the creative force of the universe that all we really are is the outcome of some random chemical combination of molecules. That's a very prevalent worldview today, and it's a very heartless worldview. And I think that kind of uh, fragmentation, which is really what it is, a scientific view is only a fragment of life, has left its impact on our minds and our hearts and our spirits. Uh, Mahatma Gandhi was asked once what he thought of Western civilization. His comment was he thought it would be a good idea. <laughs> D.H. Lawrence, uh, who's one of my favorite novelists, came to America in the 1920s and uh, lived out west. He actually lived near Taos for quite a few years. And he said that was the time he felt most connected to religion in his life. And uh, he made this comment on uh, what he saw as American culture at that time. This is paraphrased. I don't have the exact quote. He said, Americans, and I'm sure he meant European Americans, in their movement westward were profoundly affected by the size and openness of the landscape. While in settling it, they broke the land, something in them was also broken by its vastness and its emptiness. American men lost their warmth, their affection for one another, and now live isolated and lonely with no real sense of community. That was in the 1920s. So growing up without the support of a rich and integrative uh, spiritual uh, culture, I feel that we have uh, run into more difficulty than many in being able to accept the fullness of what it means to be human. And all human beings over all time have a range of feelings in, in our lives. You know, we all have the, we know the positive feelings of joy and happiness and enthusiasm and excitement, positivity. And we also know we all are familiar with the difficult uh, mental states of fear or shame or anger or guilt, or depression, or sorrow. 
We all know that whole range. And yet, depending on our upbringing, we may have very different relationships to how we hold that whole range of our human experience. And particularly, I think that it's almost a crisis point in America at this point in our history that so many people find it so difficult to accept this whole range of our human capabilities, the whole range of our human experience. And so many of us have been caught in judgments about what emotions are acceptable, what emotions are not. And this is one of the key, uh, I'd say, thrusts of the meditation practice, is to really allow us to explore all the corners of our experience so that we know all the corners of our minds and hearts, the light as well as the dark, and to really come to terms with the range of what we find there. So meditation practice is not a path that takes us over the difficulties onto some remote pot of gold that lies at the end of the path. Meditation is a practice that takes us right into the whole range of our experience of being human. And so sometimes meditation experiences are very blissful and uplifting and joyful and life-giving and heartful. Sometimes meditation experiences bring us right face-to-face with the most difficult parts of ourselves. Raw experiences of fear, of sorrow, of loss, of grief, of anger. So we need in our practice to develop a kindness to holding all of that. Even after years of practice, I'm still finding areas that surprise me or that I get uh, reactive to. I was doing a, a personal retreat uh, in the winter in New York, not, not that long ago. It, I had its little cabin up in uh, New York State. It was a beautiful part of the state. It was uh, on the edge of the Catskills in farming country. And I was up there on my own for two months. I was there for October and November. And I had a friend who would bring me food once a week. And apart from that, I really didn't see anybody uh, for those two months. And I had something like, uh, I looked out over about 100 acres of land, but then it looked onto the rolling hills and the farmlands beyond that. So I could literally see for hundreds of acres without seeing another soul. And I was just carrying on my practice of sitting and walking day after day in silence. And um, October, the, the weather was turning, the fall colors were out, it was quite beautiful. And then November came. And November in upstate New York is the start of winter, at least it was this year. And so for about two weeks, there was rain and hail and snow and high winds. And the skies were gray for about two weeks straight. I did not see the sun. And uh, I got frustrated first because I couldn't do my walking meditation. Like a stupid Californian, I'd forgotten to bring boots. I thought, well, New England, the first snowfall is usually around Thanksgiving. And so all I had were tennis shoes and sandals. So um, to do, finally, to do my walking meditation, I would tie little plastic bags around my feet <laughs> with string, little produce bags, and go out and walk. But they wouldn't last very long. <laughs> and then the days it was raining or snowing, I, I really couldn't go out at all. And so I felt quite confined. It was getting quite dark. I was starting to feel lonely and kind of sorry for myself. And all of a sudden, I just wanted to be out of there. I'd had enough of this retreat. And there's a classical term for this experience in meditation practice. It's another of these five hindrances that's called doubt. And I, it's doubt about, why should I be doing this? You know, the, the key, the essence of doubt is, what on earth am I doing here? Some of you may have asked yourself that at Spirit Rock from time to time. So doubt was coming up strongly for me. And since I talk about it, I thought I should know something about it. So I said, well, let's look at this. What's this doubt about? And so I looked more closely and I waited until the next time it came. And what I saw was just before the doubt came into my mind, there was an experience of real um, loneliness and despair at the situation. Just being all by myself in this gray climate, being cold, not being able to walk. And there was this self-pity and despair that I just couldn't stand. And so as soon as it came up, I just wanted to escape. 
So actually for me, the doubt was more about escaping what I was feeling than it was about that it didn't make sense to be on retreat. And when I understood that, the doubt went away. I saw, oh, that's what I have to do. I have to come to terms with that despair, which is still a part of me. And so when I realized that, the doubt was gone and I was back with despair, and that was a real progress, I can tell you. It was a step in the right direction. If we can't accept ourselves, if we have some kind of idea that some parts of us aren't okay, then our inner life really becomes quite tangled. We create a complicated web around our feelings because we're trying to allow some, the good ones, to come. We want to open to the positive things in life, but we don't feel we want to open to the difficult things in life, the negative side. And so we get in this habit of trying to support half of our emotional life and suppress the other half. And this actually, the only thing it leads to is deadness. We deaden our vitality when we do that. And we also create this um, division. We live life in kind of a split way that there's a judger on the one hand and there's the doer or the beer on the other hand. And the judger is kind of always passing comments of, are you being acceptable or are you not being acceptable? Is what you're feeling okay or is is it not okay? And the interesting thing to investigate in that sense of judger is, where does that judger get its opinions? It's really founded on nothing. That judge is just a fragment of our belief system. And one thing you can always be sure of is that that judger does not have the whole picture. That fragment does not contain the whole picture of the human being. And because it's an incomplete view, it's not reliable. But because there's that constant sense of tension, of judgment, then we can't relax, we can't feel comfortable, we can't really come to a deep sense of inner peace. If we can't accept ourselves, then we always look for acceptance outside of ourselves. If we can't love ourselves, then we need that affection and approval to come from out there somewhere. So we're always looking for it from others. So there's this underlying sense of need in our relationships. But the thing is, if we really don't believe we're acceptable, we also don't believe the affection when it comes. Because the world is sending all of us messages of affection and caring and love all the time. Day after day, we're getting those messages from friends, from family, from co-workers, sometimes from strangers. But if we have the view, I'm not lovable, we'll block them. Rather than change our view, we'll actually perceive that no one likes us or that no one cares for us. So even though the affection may come, it doesn't satisfy because we feel that it's just a matter of time before we get rejected. We can't let the affection really sink in. I was on retreat uh, once in England with the person who was really my primary teacher for years and years in my practice, an Englishman named Christopher Titmus. And we were practicing in this, um, on this hillside in England, right on the, near the border with Wales. It was actually just a few miles up from where Wordsworth wrote uh, lines from Tintern Abbey, if you're familiar with that poem. And it's one of the rainiest parts of a very rainy countryside. And my difficult retreat experiences, I should have learned by now, have to do with weather. So I was going through another period where in about three weeks the sun was out about twice. And um, I came into an interview with Christopher and I had been, uh, I had not been feeling good about myself at all. Especially during my walking meditation, a lot of thoughts and feelings came in about not liking myself at all. And I went and told Christopher that I was having kind of a hard time and he said, uh, in what way? And I said, I'm having some difficult thoughts. And I kind of hoped he'd stop there. And he said, oh, what kinds of thoughts? Gulp. I hadn't known Christopher for very long at that time and I didn't know whether I could really open up to him. But I told him what was going on with me. And um, 
he very compassionately said to me, you don't accept yourself. He said, you have lots of good qualities, but you don't accept yourself. And so I took that as my, as my theme for my meditation for the next few years in my practice. And I had to come to understand, I had to figure out for myself, what did it mean then to accept oneself? I mean, in Buddhism, there's not supposed to be a self, is there? <laughs> so what was I supposed to accept? And that confused me for a while. And then I kept sort of waiting. Maybe, you know, I was going to come across in one of my meditation periods some inner entity that was actually little guy. And I just had to wrap my arms around him, and then it would be all okay. That sounds kind of facetious, but in a lot of ways, I think, sometimes there's the expectation in our meditation practice that we'll have some kind of peak experience that will make all the difficult stuff go away. And that we'll enter in, that peak experience will resolve all the difficulties and we'll enter in a period of uh, everlasting light and bliss sometimes uh, referred to as the Enlightenment Retirement Option. (laughs) But I think that it's a little bit of a misleading uh, figment to think that way. One of the things that the Buddha said about this practice, one of the ways he described it, is that it's a gradual development. He said it's like the ocean floor sloping away from the shore of the land slopes away very gradually. So even though uh, very interesting and intense and mind-opening and fresh, insightful moments do occur in this practice, without a doubt, transformative moments, the idea that there's all of a sudden going to be a sudden switch from this mixture of light and dark into all light is misleading. This mixture will be with us for a long, long time And the way that we work through it is just greater and greater self-acceptance. So what I finally came to in my understanding of what self-acceptance meant for me is it didn't mean finding any one thing that I had to accept. It meant being willing to accept my experience moment after moment after moment after moment through all the changes that it went through. So it meant being willing to accept a moment of knee pain, being willing to accept a moment of fear, being willing to accept a moment of real opening and happiness, being willing to accept a moment of sadness or grief or a feeling of loss. And I think this is a much better metaphor or model for our development in meditation that we just develop a growing capacity to open more and more fully with more and more of our heart really being there to all the range of our experience, which is always changing. (laughs) Meditation also makes, I think, a unique contribution in the area of self-acceptance. A lot of what I've just talked about we could also uh, find through psychotherapy. A lot of good therapists use similar language and point to a similar approach. But there's another, I think, unique contribution of meditation. And it has to do with uh, what I'd call a very healing quality of mind, which is the quality of samadhi. Samadhi is a Pali term, a term in the language that the Buddha taught in. It's usually translated as concentration. And it's one of the factors of the Eightfold Path, along with mindfulness and wisdom and effort and understanding. So it's a key term within the whole range of the Buddha's teachings. But samadhi, when translated as concentration, to me has a sense that we have to focus our attention down and be with just one object. When I say I'm concentrating, I usually mean I'm trying to pay attention to this and I don't want to hear that. But samadhi doesn't have that flavor of exclusivity. Samadhi has a concentration flavor kind of more in the way that frozen orange juice gets concentrated. It throws out the dross and retains the essence. Another, I think the better word for samadhi, to translate samadhi, is unification 
of mind or wholeness of mind. So we can have this wholeness of mind, for instance, by being with the breath fully. And that is, that has that aspect of concentration. When I can be fully with the breath, then my mind is unified around a narrow object, a narrow focus. And in that, samadhi is developing. The mind is coming together. But we can also have that wholeness of mind with the attention very wide open. Some of you I know like to practice uh, your meditation with sounds. It gives a very expansive quality to the awareness and gives a kind of relaxation, especially if the sounds are natural. And one can be with sounds that are in a 360 degree field around us where the mind feels very whole and very unified. When the mind gets unified, it gets strong. It becomes stable and it becomes calm. And this is the great value or utility in this quality of samadhi. With that sense of strength and wholeness and stability comes a sense of well-being. That sense of well-being is experienced in terms of peace, of calm, of rest, of relaxation. And as that sense of stability and peace grows in the meditation, that becomes a very strong factor for uh, mitigating or easing the painful states of mind and the painful experiences of life. We find within this quality of samadhi a place that we can rest. And as the meditation develops over time, that state of samadhi becomes more and more our natural resting place. One teacher explained it like this. He said, in the beginning of practice, it's as though we're pushing a ball up a hill. And we push the ball up the hill and we get to the top of this curve and it can rest there for a moment. And so in the early days of practice, we feel that we connect with the breath a few breaths at a time and we get a sense, a taste of that peace of that unification of mind, of that calmness. But very easily, a few thoughts come along or some sounds come along or something disturbs our concentration and the ball slides off very quickly on one side or the other. He said, over time, that U-shaped curve flattens out and it gets easier to get the ball to the top where it rests. And when it rests there, it's not so pitched, it's not so sloped. So it rests there more easily and for longer periods of time. As the practice goes on further, this curve actually inverts and goes the other way. So the natural state of mind, after some time, becomes this resting in this state of samadhi, this wholeness or this peace. And then it still gets disturbed. Events come along, thoughts, emotions, mood swings, outer circumstances, situations, things happen. And we get flung out of that sense of peacefulness. But we develop this growing ability just to let the mind settle by itself, not to stir it up further, and it comes back to its place of rest again. This place of rest has a very uh, healing quality. It has its own sense of well-being that starts to soften the edges of that difficulty. So without even doing anything, with our difficult mind states, without doing anything with our fear or our shame or our grief or our anger, they start to be worn away. The sense of peace starts to wash out a lot of the difficulties that we may have experienced. I think this is a unique contribution that meditation has to offer to self-acceptance. I also wanted to talk a little bit about the deeper uh, dharmic theme to acceptance. And I'd like to tell a little story from uh, the time when I was a monk in Thailand. I was uh, practicing uh, down at a monastery in the south of Thailand, which was right out in the country. It was a forest monastery. The abbot was Ajahn Buddhadasa, one of the great Thai meditation masters of this half century. And I had a little hut out in the forest. There were about 80 acres of forest and about 80 huts scattered around the forest. So living in my simple hut, I couldn't see another person. Uh, it had just been kind of hacked out of the rainforest, and uh, animals would pass through my clearing, and monkeys would be swinging overhead, 
and I could just carry on my sitting and walking in this really rather idyllic little spot. Every morning at 6 o'clock, a friend and I went out on what's called alms round. The tradition of uh, Buddhist monks and also the nuns at the time when that order was alive, when that lineage was alive, was to live on food uh, donated by lay people. That's a tr tradition to the current day. So we would leave the monastery at 6 in the morning with our begging bowls and head off down the road. We had a certain route that we traveled every day and it involved about a 20-minute walk until we got to this farming area where the um, rice fields were planted. This was um, early summer, so a crop of rice was just coming up. And the villagers we visited, uh, their houses were located actually out in the middle of the rice fields, dotted around. So we would walk on the dikes in between the fields of growing rice, which are flooded, of course. We'd walk over these dikes and come up to one of these houses. The villagers knew that we'd be coming about that time every day. And one or two people would come out from each house stand at the end of a lane or a dike from their house. We'd walk up. It was all done in silence. We'd simply take the lid off our bowl and they would put in the food that they were offering, close the lid up without saying a word or even making eye contact. Then we would go on to the next house. So we'd pass about six or seven houses to get our morning alms round and then we'd walk back to the monastery. It took us about an hour and a half altogether. But it was a beautiful way to start the day. And I would go out with um, a senior Western monk who had been at the monastery longer than I had, whose name was Visuddhachara. And because he was a senior monk, he would always walk in front of me. And so we would walk for most of the hour and a half in silence. I would walk behind him. He'd walk in front. And we were going out of the monastery one day on our traditional alms round. And Vasudha stopped dead in his tracks, turned around to face me. In a very intense way, he said, Guy, the ego is just friction. <laughs> and he turned around and kept walking. <laughs> and I, of course, followed him. And uh, I had quite a long time to contemplate what uh, Vasudha had said because our walk was about an hour and a half and most of the rest of the time was in silence. So I was just thinking, the ego is just friction. <laughs> what did he mean by that? And I actually came to a real appreciation of what Vasudha was pointing to in that statement. By the way, for those of you who don't know him, Vasudhachara is now uh, a layperson again also, living in the Seattle area and uh, teaches meditation. His name is Rodney Smith. So we're still good friends and still stay in touch. The ego is just friction. Well, ego in a Buddhist context has a specific meaning. It means the sense of I. It doesn't mean a puffed sense of pride. It means the sense of I, or the sense of ourself, oneself, as a separate entity. Not a part of the whole, but a separate, solid thing that kind of experiences the world. So it's, a, in a way, a center. We kind of make the ego a center of our existence. And a lot of the teachings of the Buddha encourage us to look closely at this sense of I to see if it's real or not. Because it's such an easy thing for us to talk about. This really is the center of our life, the sense of I. Our thoughts and actions and wishes and hopes and fears all revolve around it. But the Buddha said when you look for it, it's very hard to find. It's very hard to discover what this sense of I comes from or where it is. So the sense of I is just friction. We might notice this kind of friction sometimes in our meditation practice because this sense of self, of separate self, often expresses itself through a constant movement of mind. I'm sure you didn't have that experience tonight, but some people who meditate have that experience, that they come to sit and instead of being with the breath, you know, through 45 minutes, as I'm sure most of you did, <laughs> It's generally the case we can be with the breath for a few breaths and then the mind goes away into thoughts. Thoughts of the past, thoughts of the future, plans, <coughs> hopes, fantasies, expectations, desires, fears. This constant movement and the emotions that come with it create this sense of unrest in us. 
it creates a sense of constant restlessness. And that restlessness kind of carries with it a sense of not being fulfilled, of needing something else, a sense of insufficiency. When we're caught up in that effort, we really lose touch with the present moment. And I'm sure this has happened to you many, many times. You'll go out, it's a beautiful day like this past week has been. You'll go out to the beach or climb a hill at Point Reyes or some beautiful viewpoint and you'll just want to enjoy the scenery and the spectacular view. Perhaps you're up on Mount Tam. And rather than being with the view, all sorts of thoughts and images and emotions just keep flooding through, keep flowing through. And you'll be dwelling on some situation with your partner or your children or your work or something that's coming up tomorrow. And you forget why, why you're, you're even there. You forget why you've come. And all of a sudden a little light bulb goes off and you go, I don't have to do this right now. And you're right back there in the moment with the beauty of the sunshine, the sun on the waters, the sound of the wind, the flight of a bird, whatever it may be, you're back connecting with the beauty of the moment as it is unfolding fresh from the emptiness of creation. So in that letting go of our self-concern, our self-interest, we can come back into this broader picture because life is always unfolding right under our nose. And all we have to do to contact it is to let go of this stream of self-interest. Some of you may remember this quote from last week from a medieval uh, Catholic poet named Angelus Silesius who said, God, whose love and joy are present everywhere, can't come to visit you unless you aren't there. So he's pointing in the same way to the same phenomenon, that when we can let go of self-concern, there's an openness to a much bigger picture that's always emerging fresh. Well, the Buddha was pointing to this kind of, this sense of restlessness when he gave his first, very first discourse after his awakening. It was a discourse on the Four Noble Truths. The first truth is that there's unhappiness in life. The second truth is that the source of our unhappiness is wanting, is craving, is this restless sense of insufficiency that's always looking to be filled from something outside, from something other. And this is really that sense of where that sense of resistance comes from. This constant craving that feels like it's never enough. And so in indulging in that, in giving our attention to that, as we do much of the time, we lose touch with the truth, the living, breathing truth of this present moment. And it's being in that full presence in this present moment that we find our freedom that we find our happiness. The Buddha went on to say in his second discourse, which is called the Fire Sermon, he said, friends, everything is burning. And what is the everything that is burning? The eye is burning. Visible forms are burning. Eye consciousness is burning. The ear is burning. Sounds are burning. Auditory consciousness is burning. And so on through the other senses. Burning with what? Burning with the fire of craving. Burning with the fire of aversion. Burning with the fire of confusion. So sometimes when the attention is quite subtle in our meditation practice, we can actually experience this relentless movement of thoughts and feelings as a kind of burning, a kind of restlessness that when we give ourselves over to it completely, really erodes our inner peace. Peace is a natural state of mind when we don't interfere. But this constant doing that we're involved in, plotting for the future, regretting about the past, etc., etc., is a way of continually disturbing our essential peace. When we start to accept, deeply accept, then we put an end to that constant churning, that constant restlessness. And this is really the teaching of the Buddha on the third noble truth, that the end of this restless craving 
is the end of sorrow, the end of unhappiness. And he equated it with this place he called nirvana, or this understanding that he called nirvana. So it was about finding an ultimate kind of peace, an ultimate kind of rest. So we could say that this is a kind of radical acceptance that we come to in our practice, that we discover, where the mind finds its bearing in a way that isn't moving to any object whatsoever, is not moving to hold on to, is not moving to push away, is not disturbing that deep, deep peace. And this is a very healing and refreshing place in practice. So this kind of radical acceptance wears away, washes away centuries of conditioning, lifetimes of conditioning, years of conditioning, the legacy of our upbringing, legacy of our parents and their parents before them, and even this movement of restlessness which has gone on, according to the Buddha, since beginningless time, all get washed away in this deep, deep rest. This is really an aspect of all major spiritual traditions. In Hindu bhakti path, you might call it surrender. In a Christian path, you might call it dying to the small self and being reborn to the eternal life. In a Taoist path, you might call it non-interference. In Vipassana, we're rather more prosaic, and we call it acceptance. But it's really the same pointing. I'd like just to close with a quote from uh, Nisargadatta Maharaj, who was a Vedanta teacher of this century. He said, The essence of pleasure is acceptance. Whatever may be the situation, if it is acceptable, it is pleasant. If it is not acceptable, it is painful. And this questioner said to him, but pain is not acceptable. And Maharaj says, why not? Did you ever try? He said, do try, and you will find in pain a joy which pleasure cannot yield, for the simple reason that acceptance of pain takes you much deeper than pleasure does. The personal self, by its very nature, is constantly pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. The ending of this pattern is the ending of the self. The ending of the self with its desires and fears enables you to return to your real nature, the source of all happiness and peace. So we'll close there and open it up for comments, discussion, questions, anything that anyone would like to share. Please. Sometimes I can't see so well in the back because it's a little dark. So if somebody's got a question in the back, you might just feel free to speak up. Yes, please. Yes. Uh, changeable and fixable. And yes. You just say, well, I accept that. When you could fix them, how, where do you get that wisdom to know? You know, there's that old prayer about wanting to know the difference between the things yeah. you can change and the things you can't. Um, it seems that, the, that you re, it, it requires wisdom to know which things to accept. Yes. <coughs> The question was about um, how to know which things to try to fix and which things to accept. And as you say, that old prayer really is a good guideline. God, um, give me the courage to change what I can, the patience to accept what I can't, and the wisdom to know the difference. And I don't think that um, there's any cut and dried rule. I think that the um, Part of the downside of Eastern spirituality has been an overemphasis on acceptance and a lack of activism. And I think in the West, um, we have a good history of activism that we need to complement with the wisdom tradition. So I think we have the possibility of finding a happy marriage here. But... Um, it's, it's not always easy to know what's fixable and what's not. And um, I frankly have a lot of admiration for people who take on seemingly unfixable tasks 
um, when done in a spirit of patience and loving kindness. Even that restless mind that uh, we talked about, looking for solutions to Mm -hmm. problems of hunger and Mm -hmm. things like that, Mm -hmm. those restless minds are sometimes the ones that find the solution. Yes. Absolutely. The comment was that the restless mind looking for solutions to hunger is sometimes one that finds a solution. And there is a great value to the thinking process. The thought process has created um, the amount of uh, comfort and leisure that we as a group find ourselves in today which is unusual in the history of the earth. You know, for most of, I'd say most of the, certainly the life of Buddhism on the planet, people have really had to make a choice between practicing meditation as a monk or a nun or being fully involved in a lay life which afforded very little opportunity to do any in-depth practice. And we have the opportunity to live as lay people and to do lay practice because some of us fortunately have some leisure time. So thought, I think, has given rise to many great things, and it's not that we want to deny the value of thought, but rather, uh, can we create a relationship with thought where we are not the slave of thought? But as many people say, thought makes a terrible master, but a good servant. So to find an element of choice with thinking, to find if we're going down a track where the thoughts don't seem to be productive, can we say enough? I don't need to do that. One of my Tibetan teachers uh, said to me that if he's had a thought five times and it's not bringing fresh insight, he won't think it again. (laughs) So, it's a good guideline. Other comments? Yes. Mm-hmm. Questions about finding the balance between uh, being active and um, working toward what one believes in and finding the balance with, say, inner, inner work. What I found, uh, my life has basically uh, gone between three modes. Um, I've generally done uh, long periods of meditation practice, often in solitary retreat. I've done uh, jobs to make money, and I've done service work. And uh, for me, that was, that's been kind of the way that I've found a balance, is that I don't, I haven't necessarily done all three at the same time and sort of split my days up or my weeks, but I've taken chunks of time and done uh, different pieces of it. So that's the way I've done it, but different people uh, divide it differently and do you know, all three things at the same time, so to speak. So there's no one model for what's right or what's wrong. I think that um, the inner journey, when undertaken for a period of time, naturally leads you back into the world. And so what I see for myself and lots of friends is that the spiritual life goes through cycles of being more inward and quiet and introspective and maybe retreat-oriented. And then having kind of drunk enough at that well, there's a natural movement to take whatever small degree of wisdom or understanding one has come to and take it back into the world to share it, to um, bolster you know, one's understanding in a different way. And so I think those cycles are a really natural part of um, an ongoing spiritual life. And so it just really requires listening, I think, to yourself to feel which is more strongly drawing you at any one time. It sometimes looks like meditators turn their back on the world by going into retreat. But um, Joseph Campbell wrote this beautiful book that many of you probably know called A Hero with a Thousand Faces, 
which traces the archetype. He says there's one myth in human consciousness, and it is the myth of the hero or heroine. And uh, what that myth is about is about a withdrawal from the world, a discovery of uh, extraordinary resources, and then a return to the world to share that discovery. And that's really the archetype for the life of Christ and the life of the Buddha and um, a lot of other myths around the world. So I think one really has to listen inwardly to see where the call is. And because our culture is so outward-oriented by our history, the West does not have a history of going in apart from some very few contemplative traditions that I really encourage people where there's the urge to look within to follow that. Follow that and trust in that because it will lead you back. Don't worry about turning your back on the world for a limited period of time. Trust that call and then when you come back you'll have more to share. It's worth the journey. Any other comments? Yes. Mm. Can uh, can we narrow it one's own or others? Well, I think it all starts with our own. Sure. So that's something. Yes, good good question. Anger is one of the things that we do have to come uh, into a, a lot of acceptance with. It's one of the um, most difficult of the emotions that we experience. In, in my mind, they're kind of the big four. They aren't the classical hindrances, but um, in my view of meditators, the four that catch people are anger, fear, um, grief, and wanting. And so anger to me is one of the big four, and it comes up on retreat, it comes up off of retreat. I think two things we really need to distinguish between with anger, one is feeling the emotion in and of itself. And this is the realm of meditation practice, to become comfortable with our experience of the emotion of anger. So the ways that it manifests are first that mental feeling, however you describe that for yourself, the uh, hostility or aggression or resentment or whatever. There's a mental tone to that. There's an emotional tone. The second is the way you feel it in the body because strong anger has a strong impact in the body. You know, I feel it particularly in the chest, the neck, ahead. So really come to, to let yourself feel those body sensations. And the third way that anger manifests strongly is in thinking. And often the thoughts about, they shouldn't have done this to me, why'd they do this to me, they had no right doing this to me, and what I'm going to do to them is, and I'm going to do it this time. And So all the thoughts are going on at the same time. So to become aware of those three aspects of the experience of anger, that's the constellation. It's the thoughts, the emotion, the body sensations. That's what in meditation we have to come to really open to and let ourselves feel without the judgment that it should go away or that it shouldn't be there. That's the belief that really interferes with the quality of acceptance. So it's really helpful if we can bring an attitude like we're observing any other part of nature. You know, emotions are part of human nature. So can we bring that same kind of I, that we would look at, you know, coming across a bobcat in the wild. Can we bring that same kind of I to the nature of anger when it comes? And that's what meditation practice is ideal at, if you have um, a quiet period to do that in. Difficulty with anger is we often feel it and we have to relate at the same time. And that's really what takes a lot of skill. The more skill you can acquire in just being with anger in a quiet way, and sitting on your cushion, alone, in nature, whatever way that you can experience it in solitude, that's a very, very helpful foundation for acceptance. Acceptance takes some of the element of conflict out of anger, brings in more spaciousness, and it gives us a foundation so that we can still relate in a way that's not so controlled by the anger. So the difference is that we want to accept the experience of it. We don't necessarily want to act directly out of it because that can be destructive for others as well as ourselves. 
So the growing, I find the growing ability to accept it just for what it is gives me a spaciousness that may, means my speech and my actions aren't so controlled by the anger. And I can maybe think a little bit about what a sane person would say in this situation <laughs> before I put my foot in. So that's kind of a quick guideline. We'll probably talk more about anger tomorrow night in the aversion talk. Yes, one more, please. Uh, on the same subject, one tool that I've used to um, uh, free me from my anger a little bit is to have the understanding that much of my anger is self-centered fear. Mm. And so when yeah. I relinquish my grasp, when I surrender myself, then I don't get trapped into the self-centered fear and therefore anger is easier to yeah. release. Beautiful. The observation was that when he realizes that his anger has its root in a self-centered fear, it makes it easier to let go of. And I think that's a true and a, a very helpful insight. Yeah, beautiful. Thanks. I often find what's at the root of my anger is a feeling that I'm invisible. Somebody has done something to me that shows lack of respect because they haven't even seen me. And it brings up a fear that I don't really exist. That's kind of the root fear for me. Okay, let's close with just um, a minute of metta meditation to close the evening. For this metta period, I would like you to bring to mind a difficult aspect of your life. It could be a person, it could be part of your own experience, it could be a situation, it could be a group of people. Bring to mind some difficult aspect of your life. Let yourself feel for a moment the difficulty that this brings you. And hold the situation, the person, the aspect in your mind with an image or a sense in your body, your thoughts, whatever's helpful. And in this case, we'll direct the loving kindness to ourselves in relation to this situation. In contact with this, may I be safe and protected from harm. May I develop a sense of peace. Even though it's difficult, may I find within me the capacity to accept this difficulty. Even though I might normally contract, may I allow myself to hold this situation and let my heart be fully open. May I live with peace. May I live in happiness. May I live in freedom. Just a couple of short announcements uh, to close. Um, next Monday, uh, the sitting will be led uh, jointly by myself and Fred Wapipa. Fred is a really wonderful Native American teacher who lives in the area. I'll be doing the meditation, basically the silent part. Fred will be doing the talking part. <laughs> That's the way I like it. Uh, Sylvia's class will happen this Wednesday, although Sylvia's out of town. Someone will be leading it, I'm not sure whom but someone will be there. And I just wanted to mention something about our family program. For those of you who are not aware of it, uh, Spirit Rock does have an ongoing program for children, uh, really of all ages. We're thinking about 
now starting a program, a special program for teens, uh, separate from the younger children. And we're really working to make um, Spirit Rock a place where children of all ages will feel at home, will feel that it's their spiritual home from a young age. So we will be inviting children to uh, come from time to time from the family program, which meets in the dining hall on a Monday night, and interact with the group here. And of course the invitation is always out uh, for children to take part in the meditation periods and the Dharma talks here of a Monday evening. Okay, hope you have a good week. Susan, yes. Uh, Just one comment. We do sell cookies on Monday evenings that support the children's program. And if somebody left their black pocket knife on the cookie table this evening, I have it. So thank you for all your support and see me afterwards. Okay. Thanks for coming and good night. This talk was given by Guy Armstrong at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on March 18, 1996. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.